And last week, or last time rather, um, we were talking about really the, the beginning of the, the different sects of Christianity back then, uh, the Pharisees, the Essenes, the Sadducees, and how they came about. Um, basically, during the time of the Maccabean Revolt is when these systems began to materialize. Well, after the Maccabean Revolt, when the Greeks had taken over, Israel got it back. It wasn't long. They had power for a while, but then the Romans started uh, coming into power. And so in 63 BC, we have the Roman power officially taking over. And then by 37 BC, we've got some zealots that arise and take Jerusalem back. So you can see that there's back and forth this fighting over Jerusalem. Remember, a big reason is because this is a very important spot in the world. For anybody to get anywhere else, you're going to have to go through Israel. You're going to have to go through those areas. And so it's important to control this little piece of land. Well, Rome conquers Judah and Herod the Great, son of Antipater, is going to come into power. He begins ruling in 37 BC and officially it seems that the scepter departs from Judah, which was a prophecy that when the scepter would depart from Judah, that the Messiah would come. And so that's very significant in that sense, because really the Jews have never gotten the land back until 1948. So this Herod the Great was actually a Jew. He was a... Um, very acquainted with the Jewish ways, but he was a Roman. He was really a pretty effective leader, but cruel and paranoid. As a result, he is going to execute most of the Sanhedrin that had been set up during the time of the Maccabean Revolt. Now, the first Sanhedrin, which was made up of the Sadducees, at that point, even though there were some theological differences, were more theologically sound than the new ones that are going to replace them. Because he's going to replace them with the Hellenistic Jews. The Hellenistic Jews, if you remember, were those that had been Hellenized by Alexander the Great and Antiochus and had become more Greek in their thinking. We talked about that last week, the difference between Jewish thinking and Greek thinking. And so it's this new Sanhedrin with more of a Greek-thinking mindset, a Hellenistic mindset, they are the ones that are going to send Jesus to the cross. Herod is going to remove the high priest, and he puts in Greek priests instead. And so we can see a Hellenization of the Jewish culture even more again. Um, he's going to refurbish the temple, which becomes known as Herod's Temple, which is the one that when Jesus walks the earth, is there, Herod's Temple. Much more magnificent than the other one. Um, that, you know, they came back when they uh, came from Babylon and built. So he adds on. So he's going to bring all kinds of jobs and prosperity. Um, 
he, as I said, is very paranoid, so he's going to kill at least one of his wives. Uh, also, his own sons, some of them, due to paranoia, because he thinks that, you know, that they can rule. Uh, Matthew 2.1 shows his paranoia when it came to Jesus being born, the Magi coming and saying, where is this king of the Jews? And he's like, I don't want anybody other, no competition here. So he, you know, kills all the babies. Well, eventually then he dies in uh, 4 BC. So this is why most scholars are going to put the birth of Jesus somewhere between 7 and 4 BC. Okay. I've heard some even go like 3 BC, I think. But for the most part, 4 BC is the one that is most common. Um, here's just to, to help you out. I'm not going to spend too much time on this, but I just want you to kind of see a little bit, because like I said, I can't keep them straight ever. But Herod the Great is the one that we're talking about here that kills all the babies. And we're going to see the different wives and where we get. So Herod Agrippa, he is the one that is going to imprison Peter, and he is the one that also kills James, son of Zebedee. You also have him being married to Herodias, and that's a big story with John the Baptist because John the Baptist rebukes Herod for um, basically, here uh, is John the Baptist rebuking him because, or uh, Herod Antipas, I'm sorry, had been married to Herodias, and Herod Philip kind of falls in love with her, and so he actually rebukes Herod Antipas, not Agrippa, um, because there's this love triangle between brothers, and in Scripture it says that he rebukes him because he had married his brother's wife, and that is why it is there, if that makes sense to you. Um, so just a, a chart, it doesn't really matter so much for what I'm going to talk about tonight, so like I said, I don't want to hang out there, but I just wanted to show you so that it could make some sense to you because like I said I always get them mixed up still and mixed up and need to refer back to the chart constantly so um, this is how it goes now Herod the Great did a lot of other things I'm not gonna spend a lot of time on this either but just to show you he built what is called the Herodian and it is just basically by Bethlehem Matter of fact, as you look, stand on the Herodian, you can look down over Bethlehem. And so here's Bethlehem, all of this there. Now, in Jesus' day, it would have been much smaller, but you can see how it's you know, filled the, the hills now. Um, <clears throat> on the other side, I'll show you a picture here in a moment, it's the Judean wilderness. Then on the other side of the Judean wilderness is the Dead Sea. So that gives you an idea of where it's at. But Herod the Great was known as a master builder because... He not only builds the temple, he has this Herodian, he has other palaces, and we know his tomb is there at the Herodian. They, they actually found it, and so we have lots of information, you know, just from archaeology based on him there. Here's the temple, so if you go to Jerusalem today, all the models of the temple, you're seeing Herod's temple, it's often called. Now, the only reason I'm even bringing this up this is the Herodian here as well. It's, it covers about 45 acres. But the reason that I'm bringing this up is because 
When you read through the Bible and Micah and Zechariah and all this, it's talking about the temple and the glory of it is going to be amazing and wonderful and, and, and so much grander than the other one. But we know that when the Babylonians conquered the temple and took it in 586 B.C., when they came back in the days of Ezra and Nehemiah and rebuilt the temple, the people, when they see it, its glory, they weep because they remembered the former glory. In other words, the temple that was built at that time was not as good as the first one. So then Herod comes and, and builds this elaborate temple. I don't believe that that's what the prophecies in the Old Testament are talking about, Herod's temple. He's talking about something grander than that. So I'm going to just kind of let that simmer for now. Um, anyway, the other reason I wanted to bring this up is simply because I want to show you the grandeur and the, not timeless, but what's the opposite of timeless? Limited, I guess, rule of King Herod. He's dead. His great magnificent things that he built are torn, torn apart. And so his kingdom pales to the king of the Jews, Jesus Christ. And his reign ended whereas the reign of Jesus Christ continues. And to kind of keep that perspective in mind. So here it is, looking at the Judean wilderness um, on the other side of Bethlehem. And you can just see a contrast between King Jesus and King Herod the Great. This is one of the greatest kings. And what is there to show? A bunch of dirt and rocks. This is from the top of the Herodian. Yep, if I turned around and looked the other way, you're looking at Bethlehem. And now that's a Judean wilderness. And you could almost, actually I think you can see the Dead Sea. It kind of runs along here, but just a snippet of it right there. So, um, anyway, with that Herod the Great, uh, we, we then see Herod Archelaus, or however you're going to say it, Pilate, and Philip, Herod Philip, are three main characters that are going to come after him. So Herod the Great kills all the babies. Seems like shortly after that, he dies. And so now when we're talking about Herod, when you're reading the stories beyond Matthew 2, we're getting into these other Herods. And Pilate. Pilate is not a Herod. Rome... Um, divided Judea into two regions after he died. And the successor of Herod the Great was his son Archelaus, one of them that he did not kill. So he is going to rule Judea proper, basically Jerusalem and those areas. But he doesn't last long because he's incompetent, so they replace him with Pilate, Pontius Pilate. And that's where you, you get him. Well, Pontius Pilate becomes a governor there in 6 AD, and he is not well liked, causes a revolt in AD 16 and 17, which causes even more tension between the Jews and the Romans. They raise taxes, and basically by the time Jesus comes, we are at 
a very unstable situation politically. It has just continued to spiral. Um, Herod Antipas is going to be the one that's in Galilee. And so you've got different areas being ruled. Galilee, even though it's not very far for us today, back in those days, you know, it was a good day's walk to get there at least. And so you've got him in the area of the Galilee. And then Philip the Tetrarch, he is ruling in the northeast part of the Galilee, kind of across the Galilee. So northeast of the Sea of Galilee. Anyway, um, his, uh, another son, Philip, is going to rule the Decapolis, which is also the east side of Galilee, best known for losing his wife to Herod, the Great, or Herod Antipas, the one that I was trying to show you before. I'll show it to you again. And this is the one that John the Baptist is um, rebuking him for taking his brother's wife. Uh, let's see if there's anything else here. I, this is all basically outlined in Scripture. But anyway, just one more time just to see those pictures. But that's all I'm going to do with that. So that gives you kind of more of the political end of what's going on in Jerusalem. But what I want to focus on tonight is more the, the spiritual end of things and the expectations that they had under this situation. You had the Pharisees. Now, Jesus was expected by the Pharisees to be like a Pharisee. Of course, they think they're right. I mean, we think that when Jesus comes, he's coming to your church, right? That's it. I mean, all the other churches, they're going to hell, but we, we're in the right church, and that's who Jesus is going to come visit, right? That was a Pharisaical attitude, all right? And that is the attitude that they have. The Essenes, on the other hand, remember, they were the ones that lived over by the Dead Sea. Um, it's where the Dead Sea Scrolls have been found. They were the Amish of that day. And they were the ones that they opposed. Um, well, first they expected him as a judge coming in glory. So kind of a reigning king. Um, I would say that's kind of the way most Christians view it today, even though it's pretty clear he's coming like a lion, not just a lamb. But um, they had opposing views because the Bible, which is the Tanakh, I'll get to that later, but Tanakh is just three letters forming, maybe we talked about it already, but forming the uh, scriptures, the Ketuvim, Nevuvim, and um, what is it, uh, Tanakh, the uh, Torah. So, bottom line is, some verses in the Bible will say that Jesus, or that I should say the Messiah, was going to come in the clouds. Other prophecies say that the Messiah is coming in riding on a donkey. So, coming in the clouds, riding on a donkey, what, what do you do with that? It, it's, it's opposing to each other. Some said that he was going to reign. Others, we see as a suffering servant, that he would die. Some say that he was going to bring peace. Others show, other scripture verses show that he was going to bring a sword. Some say that he was going to be as a priest. Others said that it was going to be as a king. And so all of these things caused confusion because they did not realize that it would be one Messiah coming two times. The first time as a suffering servant and the second time as a reigning king. 
So there were no contradictions to any of these. It was more about his first coming versus his second coming. But this is, for the most part, the Essenes believed he was coming as a reigning king, coming in the clouds, all the good stuff with power. Well, Jesus did come similarly to what the Pharisees thought he would, in that he had disciples that followed him. The Pharisees had disciples that would literally follow them in every footstep that they would take. And they would take upon the yoke of that Pharisee, of the rabbi, uh, which simply meant their teachings. So when Jesus says, my yoke is easy, he's talking about my teachings. My fo you know, to follow me is easy. And so he used verbiages and phrases that were very pharisaical, blended right in. Things like, uh, you have heard it said, what I tell you. Because Pharisees would teach their disciples that. You've heard it said, but I tell you. And then the, the disciples would be taking notes and like, oh yeah, that's my rabbi. Okay? So he used phrases like a Pharisee. He was unlike the Pharisees, however, in that if you recall what we said last time, the Pharisees had the law of God, but then they had all these extra laws to explain the laws. They built a fence around the law of God and said, this is what it means, don't go out the fence. And Yeshua was constantly, and I mean constantly, challenging the fence. Always accepted the law, but always rebelled against the fence. We've talked about that a couple of years ago. In many people will say that Jesus broke Torah, broke the law, not once. You cannot show me a single time in Scripture that Jesus breaks the law. It's your misunderstanding of the law. He only breaks man-made additions to the law. Well, your disciples, they don't wash their hands before you eat. Show me in the Old Testament anywhere it says you have to do that. Doesn't say it anywhere. That was a pharisaical law. Okay, your disciples, they were eating grain on the Sabbath. Yeah, show me where you can't do that. In the Old Testament, it only says you cannot take a sickle to it. You can't do your normal harvest. Okay, there's, there's kind of a law, and then there's the heart behind or the spirit behind the law. We're going to talk about that later. And so he's constantly challenging those traditions. If you remember with a blind man that he healed by putting spitting on the mud and then putting mud in his eyes, you go, why? I mean, he, he heals other people without all the rigmarole. And now he's got some need to you know, spit in mud. Well, that's because in the Talmud, not scripture, but the Talmud, we read that it was against the law to make mud on the Sabbath. And I love this about Jesus because he was unlike the Pharisees and he was going to let them know I'm not a Pharisee because he's saying, this is what I think of your extra laws. I'm going to make mud because it was on the Sabbath that he is healing. He goes out of his way to break man-made traditions. But not once does he ever break the law itself. Not a one. I, I mean, I, I hear things, what about this? What about, I can answer every one of them. 
Anyway, another example here. In Matthew 15, 1, he says he's talking about the tradition of the elders. That is what was called the oral law. My Bible doesn't have any oral law. It has the written law, that's it. The oral law was what all these rabbis had said to explain those laws. The oral law became the fence. All the things that Jesus, or I should say, God told Moses, but wasn't written down, but Moses told the people, and the people then passed it on, and so on. So no proof of it, it's just oral law. All right? Basically, Jesus was saying, why do you break the law, what I said, in order to keep your fence, your laws? You know, and he did that a couple of times. He says, you know, the law says honor your parents, but you say, you know, to, to give them all the money to the temple or whatever instead. In so doing, you're breaking the law to take care of honoring your parents in order to honor your own rule. Just other examples of it. I'm not going to go through them. Then you had the Sadducees. Remember the Sadducees, they were the priests. They were in control of the Sanhedrin. And they were the ones that denied the resurrection of the dead. But they believed in the written Torah only. So Jesus was like them in some ways, in that he relied only on God's written word. And he did uphold the laws of the priests that were in the word. For example, remember when he heals the leopard, uh, leopard, leper, he says, go show yourself to the priest. Why? Because that's what Torah in the Old Testament said to do. That if you had a disease once you were clean, you had to go show yourself to the priest. So he even tells him, go do this. Because he was upholding written Torah. He was unlike them, however, and he publicly rebukes them for denying the resurrection of the dead. In essence, you might say it's much like today. The Baptists have some good theology. And they got some bad theology. Lutherans have got some good theology. And they got some bad theology. Okay? You can go on to every denomination, and there's good and there's bad. It was no different back then. They got some things right, and they got some things wrong. But keep in mind, the Sadducees are the ones running the Sanhedrin, the, the ruling body. Well, Jesus was also like the Essenes, those, that little Amish group. Because, God, you know, he did see society as being corrupt. And he often spoke of the kingdom of God, the heavenly things that the Essenes were always looking at. But he was unlike them, and he did not support going off and, and being a hermit and never sharing the message with people. He said, you're in the world, you're just not of it. And so you can see all these groups saw things they liked about him, but then saw things they didn't like about him. And so he didn't fit anybody's mold perfectly. We even see Paul, when he gets arrested in Jerusalem, knowing these different beliefs, gets a get-out-of-jail-free card in a sense, because he says 
He realizes they're Sadducees and Pharisees, and all he has to do is says, you know, I'm on trial today because of the resurrection of the dead. Well, all the Pharisees are like, yeah, resurrection, yeah, we believe in that. And so, yeah, no, he's done nothing wrong. All the Sadducees are, no, you're a pig, you got to die, you know. And so the Sadducees and Pharisees started arguing against one another because he pitted them against their, the doctrines. Then the zealots, these zealots, again, they arise after the Roman occupation and tried to overthrow Rome. Yeshua was kind of like them, too, because he came to restore Israel, to be their king. But he's unlike them in how that was to happen. Not by the sword, but by truth. And it's interesting, the disciples, you know, knew that there's somebody, who's going to deliver us from this Roman oppression? Are you now, at this time, going to restore the kingdom? <coughs> you might liken some of those people today to maybe the white hats that we hear about in our government that are trying to restore the kingdom back to God and that everything's going to get better and better and better and God's going to take all the money from the ungodly and he's going to give it to all the godly people today. And that there's going to be a restoration of the kingdom here on earth now without the Messiah reigning. Anyway, the point being is Jesus was trying to restore the essence of biblical Judaism. And yes, I follow biblical Judaism. Now, I don't go around waving a flag saying that because that would put a lot of people off today because when they hear Judaism or Judaism, they automatically will associate that. I would say 99% of the people today will associate Judaism with Pharisees. They don't even know the difference between the Sadducees and the Pharisees, let alone they'll kind of lump them together. But when they hear that I would believe in biblical Judaism, they are going to think that that is what the Pharisees believed. And that is not the case at all. I'll get to that more. But bottom line is he wanted to spread the message of the gospel to the uttermost parts of the earth. In Matthew 15... He even tells us his mission, why he came. I have come to the lost sheep of Israel. And we're going to go into that a little bit more tonight because he wanted to help them fulfill this mission that he had for them, to be a righteous remnant. Remember I told you, why did God bring Abraham to the promised land? Why did he call the Jews there, not Iowa? And the answer was because they were to be a light and a blessing to the world. Nobody could pass through them without hearing about the God of all creation. That was their mission. Did they do it? No. They failed. So in essence... When Jesus comes, he's not taking any denominational side. When he came, his goal was to spread the gospel. 
And when he came, he was not only standing on the external or literal truth of the law of God, but even more so tried to then teach the spirit behind that truth of the law of God. This week we studied 1 Corinthians 9. And in there, it applies perfectly to what we're talking about here. I want to show you a couple of things. Number one, today what I find in a lot of Christianity is I can go and show them. We'll do a Seder meal and show them, look, see Jesus? In every single thing he did, he was fulfilling the Passover. He's fulfilling tabernacles. I mean, look at Jesus everywhere. It's about Jesus. And there are Christians out there who go, oh, I see it. That is really awesome. So would you like to do this? Oh, no. No, no, thank you. <laughs> Why? You see, there's an external truth. We don't apply that kind of reasoning to anything else. For example, if you take the seventh commandment, thou shalt not commit adultery. The external is this. Don't cheat on your spouse. That's the external truth to it. But then there's an internal heart truth behind it, which means, why do you not cheat on your spouse? Because you love her. There's a relationship there, all of that kind of thing. And a marriage is a picture of my relationship with you, God says. Do we have people going, oh, I get it. That's why that commandment's there. I'm not supposed to cheat on God. Wonderful. So would you like to not cheat on your wife now? Oh, no, I'm still going to do that. Why do we accept the heart behind it, the message behind it, but we don't want to keep the literal example of it? You see what I'm saying? We, we don't do that with any of the other commandments. We understand the spirit behind it, but we should still do it, right? Don't steal. External. Yeah, okay. Why? Because you're to love your neighbor. All the commands are summed up in what? Love God, love your neighbor. There is a heart behind it. So does that mean, okay, well, I get it. I'm supposed to love my neighbor, but now I'm still going to go steal? No. So why wouldn't we, oh, I see the heart behind Passover is to point us to Jesus, but I'm not going to keep it. See what I'm saying? There's a disconnect. And I think that disconnect is in our brain of what we see Passover as. You can see Jesus, but you're still not seeing the importance of his word. Let me show you a perfect example here from 1 Corinthians 9. It says in verse 7, I'm just going to give you a little piece here, who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard and does not eat its grapes? Who tends a flock and does not drink the milk? Do I say this merely on human authority? Doesn't the law say the same thing? He's saying, here's what you do. Am I saying this by my authority? No. I'm giving it because of the authority of the word of God. So by no means is Paul saying I'm done with the law, is it? As a matter of fact, he's using the law to support the authority in this teaching, as he does throughout all of his writings. But then you move on to verse 20, 
And this gets confusing for people because he says, to the Jews I became like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law I became like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, so as to win those under the law. People stop there and go, ah, see, we're free from the law. We don't have to keep the law. Wait a minute, is that what that says? No, he says I'm not under the law. We'll come to this in a minute. Verse 21, to those not having the law, I became like one not having the law. So Paul says, I don't need the Ten Commandments. Don't use them. No, he says, though I am not free from God's laws, but I am under Christ's law. So as to win those not having the law. So what's the goal of either side of this? To win those not having the law or to win those having the law. Verse 22, to, 22. To the weak I became weak to win the weak. I have become all things to all people so that by all possible means I might save some. I do all this for the sake of the gospel that I may share in its blessings. Bottom line, what Paul is saying here, to those under the law, who are those people? The Jews. Those, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Essenes. He's saying, to those people, I become like one under the law. Now, I think a very important thing here is the Greek word for under the law there. When you look at that Greek word, <coughs> I didn't put it uh, up here, but the Greek word is nomos, under the law. If you go look at all the times that word is used throughout the New Testament, it refers to people who are not believers or under judgment. So to be under the law is synonymous with being under judgment. That is why Paul says, I myself am not under the law. He says it in Romans as well. But yet then he goes and changes his mind and says, but do we then nullify the law? No, I uphold the law. I love the law, but I'm not under the law. What? Well, because when he says under the law means under the judgment of the law. And I am not under the judgment of the law either. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So if he's not saying that I'm free from the laws and commands of God, what is he saying? Well, he's saying, in essence, what we're talking about tonight. Paul would use the Mishnah in a sense, he would use rabbinic writings. He would quote from their rabbis. He would even talk about their oral law. He would use everything that pointed to Jesus being the Messiah to relate to them in ways that they could understand for the sake of them understanding the gospel of Jesus Christ. That kind of thinking isn't going to work with the Gentiles. <clears throat> but what I want you to see is observing the law is not an evangelism strategy. Paul didn't say, to those under the law, I became like one under the law. I decided to keep the commandments of God to evangelize to them. That's not what this is saying. 
Keeping the commandments of God is a matter of loving God. And there's a big difference. Um, just as Paul isn't become a Ju- doesn't become a Judaizer, you know, one without law, to win the Jews, I should say under legalistic law, to win the Jews, he doesn't become a pagan to win Gentiles either. Matter of fact, in the very chapter before, he goes out of his way to talk about not, you know, not eating meat sacrificed to idols, to even give an appearance of paganism. But if he was saying, "I can become like a Gentile to be to witness to the Gentiles," then he'd say, "Oh yeah, no, go eat it in the temple, and then you know, tell them about Jesus. Go do all these Gentile things." But that's not what he's saying. Instead, we see him becoming like a Gentile. When he goes to Athens, right? When he goes to Athens, what does he do? He says, I walked around, I looked at all these objects of worship. I even found one with this inscription to an unknown God. Let me proclaim to you who he is. He is the God who created the heavens and the earth. And he goes on, he even goes and he quotes some of their own poets. He'd be like quoting the Mishnah for a Jew. He says, some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. And so, in essence, he was meeting them where they were at, using their culture for the sake of the gospel, but never by compromising on the truth of the law of God's word. And that is the difference here. So, becoming one without the law basically means one without any condemnation, under no condemnation. Otherwise, I mean, it would make no sense. Common sense says that when we evangelize to the unsaved, we're not going to go say, hey, I'm going to heaven, you're going to hell. Right? We're going to reason with them, and we're going to show them their need for a Savior. I'm going to become like one under the law to witness to them. Just like Ray Comfort does, he'll say, have you ever you know, told a lie. Yeah, well, what does that make you? It makes you a liar. Have you ever stolen anything? Yeah, so it makes you a thief. Then he gets done and he says, by your own admission, you've just told me you're a lying, thieving, murderous adulterer, you sinner. No, he says, by your own admission, you've just told me you're a lying, thieving, murderous adulterer, as am I. I become like one under the law and under judgment. But I'm not going to stop there. For the sake of the gospel, I say, this is why Jesus came to die on the cross, to become that for us, to become a curse for us, to take away our sins, etc. Yeah? In 21 there, he says, he references the law, but from two different perspectives. Why, why does he do that? God's law and Christ's law. He's talking about the same law. Yeah. Yeah, and I think that's, again, the, the et- uh, external versus the heart issue. So, to those not having the law became like one not having the law, though I am not free from God's law. Thou shalt not steal. I'm not free from that. Uh, I'm, I'm not free from disobeying it. But I'm under Christ's law. 
If I am under Christ's law, the law of love, do I steal? No. Do I commit adultery? No. Basically, just like he said, all the commandments can be summed up in these two things. Love. One thing. Love your neighbor. Love God. When you are under Christ's law, all the other laws are kept. Why? Because I love God. I want to do what he says. Again, this is just so appropriate for what Jesus was doing here when he went to the Pharisees. He was like the Pharisees. He didn't compromise his values. He didn't compromise the law of God. He didn't compromise truth, but he was like them. He was like the Essenes. He was like the Sadducees. He was like the Zealots. He was like all of them in some way, but without compromise to the truth of God's word. And all of this leads us to this. In Matthew 2.15 it's interesting. We see the background here. Jesus, remember when he was born, Herod is, is trying to find him. He finds out, uh, Joseph is warned in a dream to flee, so they take Jesus to Egypt. And then later they come back. In telling this story that Jesus is going to Egypt, in Matthew 2.15, it says this all happened, and so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. Now we read that in the New Testament and we think, okay, makes sense. God prophesied that he would bring Jesus out of Egypt. And so that's why he was sent to Egypt, right? All right, let's move on. However, this is a quote from Hosea 11, verse 1. And you go and read Hosea verse 11, chapter 11, verse 1. It says... When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. It's in reference to Israel, not Jesus. So, did somebody like not understand the concept of Hosea when they're quoting it in Matthew? What's going on here? The answer is this, as I'm going to show you, is Yeshua Jesus was coming to fulfill the mission that God had called Israel to do, but they failed to do. And so he would live out their calling for them. That calling to be a righteous remnant and ultimately to bring God to the nations. I want to show you this here in comparison. Here is the history of Israel. Israel was born by a miraculous promise. You know, he goes to Abraham and says, you're going to have a child. And they're like, no way. I'm old. My wife is old. Can't happen. But it was a promise. Jesus is born in a miraculous no way way. <laughs> Mary, you're pregnant. Uh, I've never been with anybody. You're pregnant. They were both born of a promise. We see that um, he was uh, in, in Israel, the king known for the king of Israel is King David. All right? And that king came from Bethlehem. Jesus was born in Bethlehem and is our king. Hosea 11, we kind of talked about that just now. We see that Israel, Pharaoh tried to destroy them. 
Herod tries to destroy Jesus. We see Moses was raised up as a savior of Israel. Jesus is called one like Moses, one greater than Moses, and he rises to be a savior of Israel. We see that Israel was baptized as they went through the Red Sea. 1 Corinthians, I think, 10 is going to talk about that. The very next chapter, he says they all passed through the sea. They all were, were washed in a sense. And this is a symbol of baptism It will go on. Well, Jesus is baptized in the Jordan. We see that the Israelites spend 40 years of desert wandering. Jesus spends 40 days out in the wilderness being tempted. We see that Joshua, which is literally the same name, Jesus, Yeshua, in, in Hebrew there, Yeshua leads them into the promised land. Yeshua is going to lead us into the promised land. Yeshua told, was told to destroy the inhabitants. When you go into the promised land, you wipe them all out. You kill man, woman, and child. Because if you don't, then their gods will become your gods. And if you start worshiping their gods, I'm going to bring all these diseases upon you. The, the, the diseases that the Egyptians had, you will now have. And so, does Joshua do this? No. They leave the demonic aspect in the promised land. So when Jesus comes, what does he do? He casts out demons. He heals the sick. Gets rid of the diseases. All of the influence from the satanic uh, leftover that wasn't chased away, Jesus is getting rid of. And then we see that Israel, because of that, dies under the old covenant. They die because they can't keep the covenant. So Jesus comes and dies under the old covenant, fulfilling the life, the mission, the goal, the calling of Israel. And so when Hosea says, out of Israel, or out of Egypt, I called my son, there's a, a dual picture there. He's saying Jesus was going to be the one that was going to fulfill what Israel could not do. It is the same thing when we hear that Jesus fulfilled the law. Today in the church, we often hear Jesus fulfilled the law, so I don't have to do it anymore. After Jesus healed, did he say, okay, took care of it. You guys go ahead, go be a biker for Christ. No. He says, now go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing, teaching, to obey. And to obey. Teaching to obey. Yeah. Everybody can that. Yeah. Teaching to obey. That's right. And so, Jesus came and fulfilled what they failed to do, but he also was teaching them and showing them this is how it's done, and now I'm going to leave my spirit to empower you to be able to get it done. So when Jesus came and fulfilled the law, he doesn't say, okay, now go ahead and go break it. I took care of it for you. 
He is fulfilling the calling. And that is why there is now no condemnation for us when we fail. And you do and will and always will fail in being able to keep the commandments of God. But there is no condemnation because he fulfilled our calling for us. And because of that, I love him and I am going to now want to do the same. Walk in his footsteps. So, again, since Jesus fulfilled our mission, do we stop living out the mission? Not at all. No more than because Jesus fulfilled the law do we stop trying to keep the law. It's just with the right attitude that we do it. So, um, Joshua was unsuccessful in cleaning out the land, as I said. But what Jesus does is he casts out the demons that came from the Canaanite tribes that Joshua left. He heals the sick due to the disobedience here. And he teaches to bring back truth and empower them to do what they failed the first time. And so, even with that, Israel's restoration is not complete, however. Because what happens? Israel doesn't believe. Even after he casts out the demons, even after he heals the sick, and he's doing everything that Israel was supposed to do for them, they still don't believe on him. Here's a verse of one of those three there, Deuteronomy. If you do not carefully follow all the words of this law, what's going to happen? He's going to, you know, basically in verse 60, bring on you all the diseases of Egypt that you dreaded, and they will cling to you. They didn't keep the law. They didn't fulfill their mission. So there's a mess. Jesus has to come and clean up. But now they still don't believe, so what does he do? Acts 1-4, the disciples are told to wait in Jerusalem until the spirit and power come upon them. In essence, Jesus and the Holy Spirit is what empowers them and us to do what they were called to do and failed to do. Guys, you were called to keep the law of God. You cannot keep the law of God. It's impossible. That's why it is through Christ that you can do all things. We, we keep trying and calling upon Him and using His strength to do it. But that's why He gave you the Spirit to believe and to obey. In Acts chapter 2, we see Shavuot or Pentecost comes and the Spirit of God comes upon them, allowing them to speak in all the languages. And I've talked about this before, but just to remind you, this wasn't the first time tongues of fire came. It literally says it in the Bible that when the Ten Commandments were being given, tongues of fire were on the mountain. And sparks of fire went out. And the Jews record in their histories that it went out to the 70 nations. So the first time we see the Spirit coming down is in the giving of the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20. And when those commandments were given, sparks of fire shoot out to all the nations. The word goes out to all the nations. What happens at Pentecost? The flames of fire come down and the word goes out to all the nations. Basically, they say it went out to the 70 nations, which ultimately goes, is supposed to go out to the world. 
Not that, you know, if there was a Canaanite at that time or whatever, that it went to them, but eventually it's going to get to them. But uh, you can go back and listen on our messages called Flames of Fire or Tongues of Fire that on my message on that, and I'll show you all of it in Scripture. Um, so anyway, in Exodus 19.5, it says, If you obey me fully and keep my covenant. Notice that covenant again. Then, out of all the nations, you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. Remember when he called them, what did he call them for? To be a blessing to the nations. And by the word coming to them, it was supposed to go out to the world. Likewise, by the word coming to you, the spirit coming to you, you are to be taking that word to the nations. So the mission of going out was given there in Exodus 19 that we just read. There's a mission here. You're supposed to do something. You're to be a kingdom of priests as well as the Ten Commandments being given there on Mount Sinai. So, <coughs> the difference here, although I think foreshadowed, is God's word was spoken on Mount Sinai, which, by the way, is believed that that happened at Shavuot or Pentecost as well, 3,000 years earlier. And now the Spirit is given in the New Testament on the same festival and for the same purpose. Therefore, Yeshua makes Israel holy. He enables them to be a priestly nation. They weren't when he told them to in Exodus 19, but when he gives the Holy Spirit, you have now become a nation of priests. He's allowed you to fulfill your calling. And he wants you to be an envy of the nations. So, Exodus 19, 4 through 6, again, if you obey me and fully keep my covenant, that's obedience, then out of the nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. That's what Pentecost did for us. Empowers you to be able to keep the covenant. You won't do it fully, but when you don't, there's no condemnation, good news. But it empowers you to not only want to keep it, but to be able to keep it. We have to stop saying, I know, you know, well, I'm addicted to pornography, or I'm addicted to smoking, or I'm addicted to drinking, or I'm addicted to whatever. Stop. You have the power to stop. You know, it's like my wife and I are trying to exercise. It sucks. <laughs> but it's so easy to make an excuse. I, we just can't. Oh, you just can't. Right? No, you can. Just do it. You have the power inside you in the Holy Spirit to do or to not do, depending on what we're talking about here. So, in closing, who responds to this Spirit being given so that you can fulfill the mission? Well, the Pharisees do, in a sense, many of them. In Acts chapter 15, verse 5, we see that many Pharisees do believe. How about Nicodemus? Okay. 
There are some Sadducees that believe in Acts 15. It says a large number of priests believe. Remember, they are the Sadducees. The Essenes, we don't really know much about them. The Zealots, well, we know Simon was a, a zealot. He was a follower of Jesus. And there were many common people. And then later, after Acts 15, we see many Gentiles even come in. And so, in following the history, we see that God came and empowered us to be able to do these things. And we're going to see that the Holy Spirit... And God's point in coming to the lost sheep of Israel worked. You will see, and we're going to trace this throughout history, you are going to see that there were many faithful and are. There still is a remnant to this day. Remember Elijah? Lord, they've torn down your altars and killed your prophets, and I am the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me. And what was God's response? I have still reserved 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too at the present time there is a remnant chosen by grace. There is a remnant because of the Spirit of God and because of what Jesus came to do that is alive and well and even growing today. And we want to trake, trake, trace, track, track and trace. <laughs> that remnant throughout history. And one of the things that's going to fascinate me, as I, I maybe told you before, I know I've told some people, but I think that uh, we, we see that there is very good evidence to show that um, Christopher Columbus waited and postponed his trip to save Jews from the pogroms. And that there were Jews on the ship that came to America. Jews that knew the Messiah. So anyway, that's just a maybe not so exciting cliffhanger, but a cliffhanger nonetheless. Um, what I want you to get out of this is just the fact that Christ came to fulfill the mission that Israel failed to do. And <clears throat> the same as the law, he fulfilled what you failed to do. But that doesn't mean the law was taken away. It doesn't mean that the external is taken away. It simply means that while we keep the external, we remember the point of it. And that point is internal, a heart issue after God. Not a, oh, I need to be a good Christian. Not a list to check off your list, but a covenant relationship that we are in. Not just we're forgiven, as I talked about earlier in, at communion. We're not just forgiven. We are in a covenant. And a covenant means there's a job. There's a role that you still have to be part in that covenant. So we'll close in prayer with that. Heavenly Father, thank you for this time. And we just ask that uh, it would continue to just simmer in our hearts and minds. We thank you for being um, the law for us. That you did fulfill the law in our stead. So that... You set not only an example, but took away all condemnation for our failures. You came to be what we could not be. And yet, you still left us your Holy Spirit to empower us so that we can do what we want to be. And so, let us know that Spirit. Let us know your word. 
And let us not be proud or arrogant or boast over those branches as the Pharisees or the Sadducees or the Essenes or any of these other groups did. But let us realize that there is one body, one spirit, and one God. We love you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.